test all things number three. And our topic pretty much for the whole day is going to be uh, what private judgment is not. Now, last week we looked at private judgment. That was our second sermon. It's our duty as Christians to know the scriptures, to study the scriptures, and to be able to argue based on the scriptures. And not simply said, well, you know, Calvin said this, or John Knox said that, or John Owen said this. We need to be able to argue from Scripture. And we have a right and duty, according to Paul and Jesus, and our own Westminster standards, of private judgment. And that simply means that we have a right to study the Scriptures and interpret them for ourselves. We don't have a right to teach error. We don't have a right to have a wrong interpretation, but we have the right to study the Scriptures for ourselves. Let me read our text. So today our topic is going to be what private judgment is not. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. The biblical teaching on private judgment, of course, is crucial. <clears throat> Yet, sometimes it's abused and misunderstood. Especially among Baptists. Every Christian has a right and duty to read and study the Bible for himself, but this does not mean that believers should ignore the achievements of Orthodox pastors, theologians, councils, and church creeds that have been written down over the long history of the church. And people have written articles, Solo Scriptura versus Sola Scriptura, and some of the articles are pretty weak. But um, we've got to take into account what went before us as we study the scriptures. Jesus gave the church pastor teachers, and if you study that section in Ephesians, grammatically, it's not pastor comma teacher, it's pastor slash teacher. <coughs> uh, for the work of the ministry, okay, uh, who are gifted by the Holy Spirit for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, Ephesians 4.12. God instituted church government for a purpose. The Great Commission was given to the apostles and all those in the future who had the biblical authority to preach the gospel, teach the whole counsel of God, and administer the sacraments, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. It's very commonly misunderstood today that that's given to all Christians. No, it's given to church officers. Now, we're to witness to our neighbors and we're to help out, but... We don't administer the sacraments. Uh, not everybody administers the sacraments and preaches. <clears throat> the church is to study the scriptures and faithfully present its teachings in an organized, systematic manner with applications for the people's current situation in life. And if you want to know about preaching, it's very simple. Part one, here's what the text teaches. A grammatical, historical interpretation of the passage. What does it teach? You don't use the text as a springboard to talk about anything you want. What does the text say? Part two, how does it apply to me? That sums up preaching in a nutshell. And there's a great book on prophesying by, oh, I forgot his name, he's a Puritan, that's really good on this. The two main things. <clears throat> Power first of the true church of the living God is the pillar of, and ground of the truth, 1 Timothy 3.15. Now, this statement does not mean that the church creates the truth, but that it supports it, defends it, and propagates it. 
The church supports the truth. Paul, using metaphorical language, describes the church as a structure called upon by Christ to uphold the truth of Christianity as it conforms itself to these great unalterable truths. So the church does have a crucial role to play. But it's not an independent role. It's not a creative role. It's a ministerial role. Paul discussed, Titus 1.1, the knowledge of the truth that is according to godliness. As the church pillar supports the roof, and even better, and this is the Paul's climax, as the foundation supports the entire substructure, so the church supports the glorious truth of the gospel, and of course the whole counsel of God. The church is there to preach the truth, teach the truth, apply the truth. That's what the church is for. So these Anabaptist groups where all these families get together and they take turns preaching and they don't have real elders and they don't have real ministers, that's totally unscriptural. There's to be ordained ministers of the word and there's to be ordained ruling elders. The Bible's crystal clear about that. Acts chapter 6, you get the deacons and you get elders and you get it's obvious if you read the New Testament. The content of Christianity is absolute truth. It does not and cannot be changed. Truth is truth. It doesn't change. That's what's one thing wonderful about it. Science, their views of things change over and over. There's a really good book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions by Thomas Kuhn, where he shows that this generation of scientists believe this, and they all taught it dogmatically, and then 80 years later, they might be teaching something completely different. It's a paradigm shift. And, of course, modern, modern science, it, physics and so forth, is in crisis because the more we learn about the universe, the more we learn that their theories are all a bunch of nonsense. They're, they're like little five-year-olds in a dark closet, you know, blindfolded. They, they really don't know. They, we, you know. they have to invent concepts like dark matter and stuff to explain all this stuff that they, can't, they don't understand. But this truth must be faithfully taught and applied. The church is necessary, for it is the messenger of the gospel, as well as the teacher of sanctification and training center for godly dominion. The church is the training center for godly dominion. Now, the family is the chief instrument of godly dominion through child-rearing and building up Christian businesses and so forth. But it's the church that trains men to lead, that trains men to do their job. The church has an absolutely crucial role to play. We don't deny that one bit. But the Christian, and of course there's church discipline, only the elders have that authority. But the Christian is not to simply follow pastors and teachers with an implicit faith. Believers are still required to study and learn the scriptures so they can faithfully test all pastor teachers, theologians, and church creeds. Yeah, the Westminster Standards are wonderful. They're the best creed ever produced. But we still have to be able to prove everything from Scripture. Test everything. Why is this testing or proving all things necessary? Well, because not all pastors teach the truth. There's all kinds of church. Where I live in the South. I live in Texas. There's all kinds of churches around here. 
And I wouldn't be caught dead stepping into any of them that are in close proximity. Why? Because they're Arminian. They're Baptist. They're premillennial. They're dispensational. They deny the law of God. They teach a heretical view of salvation. Why would I want to go there? Well, how do I know that? By testing all things. I don't simply take what they say. The first time I heard the word John Calvin, first time I heard his name was in a sermon uh, where a guy was ripping Calvinism and John Calvin. You know, there's these people out there and they teach that God saves whoever he wants. And everybody starts laughing. <laughs> what a ridiculous doctrine. And then he turned around and he taught humanism. No, God's not in control. Humans are. That's humanism. That's Arminianism. It's ridiculous. Even in Paul's day, false teachers were a serious problem in the church. Already. In the first generation. Therefore he warned the Ephesian elders who he personally knew were faithful to the gospel, saying, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, now remember he's got the prophetic gift, he's an apostle, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in amongst you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch, and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. That's Acts 20, 28-31. So heretics come in. Listen to me, I get this new fancy doctrine. And heretics arise from within the church. And virtually every heretic I can think of, the, well, 90, 95% of them, arose from within the church. Arose from within the church. Note Paul's warning. Here's Paul's warning in 1 Timothy 4, 1-6. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith. Now he's not talking about 2,000 years in the future, they were living in the latter days. This happened within a generation. Giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared as with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Now who's he talking about? Neoplatonists. And of course, you know, it sounds like we read it and we go, that sure sounds like Roman Catholicism. Well, it sure does, because they do the same thing. But in that day, it was Gnostics, you know, who had this Neoplatonic view of reality. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified, that is set apart, by the word of God in prayer. <clears throat> if you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith, and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. So the Apostle says that faithful Orthodox ministers and elders have a responsibility to train the flock in sound Christian doctrine. Orthodox, true Christian doctrine. And the ability to use the Scriptures to back up and support all these genuine 
apostolic teachings. Why do you believe that Jesus is both God and man in one person? What is your proof? Why do you believe in the Trinity? That's probably the most difficult doctrine. Why? Because most people think it sounds irrational. It's not irrational at all once you understand it. One God with three interpersonal distinctions among the Trinity. The Father begets the Son eternally. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. Hard to understand? Yes. Absolutely true? Yes. One must know the true theological position and be able to prove it using the Bible. The great Sola Scriptura passage in 1 Timothy 3 is given in the context, if you read before and after, of protecting the flock from evil false teachers. Here's 12 to 17, 1 Corinthians 3, 3, 12 to 17. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Jesus Christ will suffer persecution. But evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. In other words, you must continue in orthodox, apostolic, true Christian doctrine. You know where you got them. You got them from me. I'm an apostle. I got them directly from God. And of course, from Christ. And that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. See the context there? God's given you the Bible. You have no excuse to, to believe in heresy. You have no excuse to believe false doctrines. Why are false teachers and heresies such a serious problem? Read Philip Schaff's, what is it, seven, eight volumes? I think it's eight volumes, thick volumes. The history of the church is one, one heresy coming after another, one heresy arising right after another from within the church. And what is so great, beautiful, is that God raises up godly men to refute these guys using the Bible. Well, not all pastors are regenerate and possess the Holy Spirit. We know, uh, I know a pastor, reformed, one, actually not that bad of a preacher, uh, for many years. Now he's a sodomite, totally apostate. He's a sodomite. And he's proponing sodomite you know, views, pro-sodomite views, and participating in sodomite parades and so forth. <clears throat> I had a seminary professor who was married and had five children left his wife for a cocktail waitress, completely apostatized. You have to cling to the word. So the history of the Christian church is a history of biblical warfare uh, against one heresy after another. And I've got a very long footnote here, but I think it's important. I'm going to diverge here on church history for a little while to just see... Just, just, just get your dip your toe in the lake here. Maybe you can go read some church history. But this is extremely fascinating. <laughs> it's, it's a little bit long. <laughs> the heresies that arose from within the church or by philosophies that influence the church are almost too numerous to mention. These deadly and dangerous errors had to be challenged, refuted, and removed through precise doctrinal statements and church discipline. Now, who did that? 
The church did that. Now, Athanasius was, of course, very instrumental in, uh, but he was, and he was just a deacon. But by that time, that they looked at deacons as like kind of a subclass of you're going to become a pastor later. <clears throat> the Episcopal Church still does, does that today. <clears throat> so these deadly heresies had to be challenged and refuted, removed for the true church to survive and prosper. In the in the days of the apostles, proto Gnosticism emerged. While they were still alive, read 1 John 4, 2-3. And in a short time, full-blown Gnosticism became a problem. They incorporated elements of Alexandrian Platonism and Zoroastrianism. And some see, some even say they were into, some of them were into mysticism and Jewish Kabbalah, which is, if you've looked at it, it's complete nonsense. Their theology was dualistic. Evil and good are co-eternal. That's from Zoroastrianism. They rejected biblical creationism for the Greek idea of emanations. Okay, the Greeks viewed the creation of things as you've got the first mover and then you've got these emanations radiating out until you finally get to the earth. <clears throat> and they held that material substance is intrinsically bad, evil, and radically inferior. So what do they view? They view salvation kind of like a Hindu. Salvation is getting rid of the material for purely the purely spiritual. They'd make good full preterists, wouldn't they? <clears throat> Therefore, they denied that Jesus had a real physical body. Docetism. What does John say in, first, in, in, in his epistle? And these are the proto, they call them the proto-Gnostics. If he says to, to refute them, if anyone see, says that Jesus has not come in the flesh, they mean flesh and blood and bone, have no fellowship with him. He's a total heretic. Now, I, I forgot the exact passage, but that's essentially what John is saying. Have nothing to do with him. They're not of God. They were ascetic. And they viewed redemption as a liberation of the uh, of our spiritual elements from the material. Same as Hinduism. Same as Neoplatonism and Platonism. Neoplatonism had a long-lasting effect on the church with asceticism, monasticism, celibacy, and negative views of lawful marital sexual relations. So they did get rid of the heresy of Gnosticism. However... Elements of Neoplatonism infected the Roman Catholic Church to this very day. Priests are not allowed to get married. Where Paul says, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. And the vast majority of men, there are people that have the gift of being single. They don't care about women. But that's probably 0.0001%. It's very rare. So most pastors should be married. I don't know how you can do marital counseling without being married and having a children and having to deal with these little sinners and so forth. It really helps to be married. <clears throat> In the sub-apostolic sub era, that's AD 100 to 170, there were the heretical Christian sects called the Ebionites and the Elkisites. The Ebionites denied the divinity of Christ and taught salvation by Jesus and keeping the law. 
Sound familiar? They are a continuation of the Judaizers. The Ebionites denied the divinity of Christ and taught salvation by Jesus keeping the law. Another Christian sect, the Elkasites, taught the same things, but following the Essenes were more ascetic. They had Essene leanings. The Essenes was a, a sect in the days of Jesus that was highly ascetic that lived out in the wilderness. In the second century, there was the heresy of Marcionism, who wrote in the 130s and 140s. He posited an ultimate dualism and taught that the God of the Old Testament, the creator and lawgiver, is the evil principle. This God is cruel, unmerciful, jealous, destructive, and easily angered. Old Testament God, bad. The God of the New Testament, according to him, is good and merciful. He is revealed in Jesus. So Marcion rejected the authority of the Old Testament and all parts of the New Testament that agreed with the Old Testament. Total heretic, but had many followers. Marcionism. The Nicene and post-Nicene periods were periods of great theological controversies and, espe and battles especially over the nature of the person of Jesus Christ and the Trinity. And these two doctrines were really hashed out in those early centuries, and what they wrote is beautiful. And we still use it today and haven't really progressed from it. In the early 4th century, Arius, an elder or presbyter in Alexandria, that's in northern Egypt. <coughs> but keep in mind, Alexandria had a lot of Greek Greeks. It wasn't just Egyptians, there was a lot of Greeks there explicitly denied the divinity of Christ, teaching that once there was once when he was not. And if you study Arianism and you study modern Jehovah's Witnesses, they're very similar. This position was condemned by the First Ecumenical Council at Nice or Nicaea, A.D. 325. And if you read it, it's beautiful. Even though Arius and his followers were excommunicated, this heresy flourished throughout North Africa and the Middle East. These areas were conquered by the Muslims in the 8th century. And I believe that's judgment of God. You deny my son as God? You say bad things about my son? Say that he's just a mere man or a mere angel? Arianism doesn't exist today. Now, there's a modern form of it that came about in the late 1800s with Charles Taze Russell and the Jehovah's Witnesses. And, of course, there's been heretics who taught that throughout history, but they're gone. They were absorbed by the Muslims. At times, this church is protected by special providence, and in this case, a great judgment upon the Arians. You want to deny my sons the divine? Well, fine, you can be a Muslim, but the most satanic, degrading religion in the world. There was the great error of Paulinarius, circa 390, who taught that the divine Logos replaced Jesus' human spirit. So Jesus didn't have a true human soul. He was just a shell. And God inhabited that shell. That's Apollinaris. Nestorius, circa uh, AD uh, 430, taught that Jesus was two separate persons, human and divine. There was not a true union. In the 1440s, the Eutychians taught that Christ only had one nature. 
because the divine nature completely absorbed the human nature. During the same period, the monophysites taught that the divine nature absorbs and combines with Jesus' human nature, producing a third, new, completely unique nature. Every heresy you can think of with regard to Christ was taught in the 3rd and 4th centuries. All these deadly heresies were answered by the Council of Chalcedon, A.D. 451. In the Council of Chalcedon, the statement is so brilliant, so amazing, that if you read all the Dutch and German symbols, you know, the Heidelberg and, and all those things, uh, and you read the Westminster Standards, nobody has progressed from that statement. Where the true church confessed that Jesus is truly or fully human and truly or fully God in every way, no sin, obviously, and there, these two natures are not confused, changed, divided, merged, or separated in the union of the two natures in the one person, Jesus Christ. So there were like all these different weird heresies denying who Christ was in different ways, and they answered all of it with one perfect statement. The doctrine of the Trinity was attacked by a number of heresies called monarchianism. One version denied the divinity of Christ and ascribed to the person of Jesus only a divine presence or power. So you've got God the Father, he's, he's the one God, and then Jesus is just a man who God the Father did some work upon. This supernatural endowment upon Christ who is a mere man is called dynamic monarchianism. The other form regards Jesus and the Holy Spirit as only manifestations of the one God. This heresy is called modal monarchianism. And if you've attended uh, like a, a Baptist, a fundamentalist church where the pastor is uneducated, you'll hear terrible. Here's an, I've, I've heard this in a sermon. The Trinity's like H2O. You can have ice, you can have water, and you can have steam. Well, what's wrong with that statement about the Trinity? That's monarchialism. <laughs> it, de it denies a true interpersonal distinction between the persons of the Trinity. And it basically says there's just this one thing that has different expressions. Different expressions don't, you know, you have Jesus communicating with the Father every day, praying to him, talking to him every day. Well, in monarchianism, you don't have that. So they say there's only one person, not three. In a corrupt bishop in Antioch, Paul of Samosota, who ruled from A.D. 260, was a champion of modalism, and he was deposed from the ministry by a council in Antioch in A.D. 269. Okay, I'm taking a ton of material and just boiling it down to a footnote. But what's amazing, you, you go back and read these times, and there's the council, it'll look at something, a smaller council, and it'll say, well, we don't see anything wrong with this. And then later, a better, bigger ecumenical council will come and completely condemn it. It just shows that God, even though the church became quite corrupt with Romanism, God had his hand on things and he controlled things providentially for the sake of his church. The first proponent of modal monarchianism was Praxis, who propounded his ideas around A.D. 175. He lived from A.D. 175 to um, 189. 
He believed that the Father was the spiritual form of God, and Jesus the Messiah was the material form, and thus he affirmed that God suffered on the cross in the form of Jesus. And that's called Patripassianism. These modalistic views spread far and wide and were even found in Rome. They were strongly opposed by Tertullian, the Christian apologist, born A.D. 160 and converted about A.D. 202. Modalism was completely refuted and rejected by the Ecumenical Nicene Council in A.D. 325, and it has been held by all branches of the Christian Church since. There's nothing that has gone beyond... You know, when you get a doctrine right, and you sum it up beautifully, and you answer all the heresies that are out there, when you do it right, there's no need to rewrite it. It's that good. If you look at the Westminster Standards, they just take it and they basically re rewrite what they wrote almost verbatim. And that's true of the Dutch creeds, too. <clears throat> Deadly heresies arose regarding salvation from almost the very beginning. There were the Judaizers, as you're well aware, reading Galatians and Acts, during the apostolic period, and their stepchildren in the second century, the Ebionites and the Alkacites. There was Pelagianism from the British monk Pelagius, circa 370 to 440 who wrote in opposition to the great works of Augustine regarding the state of man after the fall and the absolute need of divine sovereign grace. The church correctly sided with Augustine, who taught that man can only believe and be converted after a sovereign work of grace on man's heart that changes it, breaking its spiritual blindness and slavery to evil and giving it a love and new impulse toward God. Okay, Pelagius didn't believe in uh, that the sin of Adam, the federal sin of, of Adam was federal and that every person is born a clean slate. And that people can keep the law perfectly and that some people in history have kept the law perfectly. After the semi-Pelagianism was proposed, kind of a modified, milder version, and defeated, but soon became the position of the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church is basically semi-Pelagian. Man uh, is not dead spiritually. Man, through assistance of the Holy Spirit, can save himself. That's the, that's a Roman Catholic view. After this, uh, so semi-Pelagianism was refuted, rejected, and condemned by Luther and all the Reformed churches, but crept back into Lutheranism through Melanchthon. Melanchthon was kind of a compromiser. A new form of heresy came, which is very similar to semi-Pelagianism, among the Dutch Reformed churches through Jacob Arminius, 1560-1609, a professor of theology at Leiden. This new heresy was refuted and condemned by the great synod of Dort, 1618, which was a general council of all the Calvinistic churches, and the five points of Calvinism that you're all familiar with? Well, Arminius had five points. The five points of Calvinists are just biblical answers one by one to each point. Ar Arminius taught that uh, election is conditional. God doesn't look down the God, God doesn't save who he pleases out of a mass of fallen humanity. God looks down the corridors of time and saves those who choose him. That comes from way back. That goes way back. 
Besides the Netherlands, there were delegates from England, Switzerland, and Germany. The Dutch and German Reformed symbols, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Belgian Confession were confirmed and set and said a series of canons was adopted setting forth biblical proof text for the five points of Calvinism. As deadly heresies have arisen in the church, it has been the faithful men in the church who have refuted, rejected, and condemned the heresies through the correct, detailed exegesis of Scripture. Prove all things. You are responsible. Every Christian is responsible to study their Bible and learn all the arguments and know your theology. But, in history... God has used the church to defeat heresies. As deadly heresies have arisen in the church, it has been the faithful men in the church who refuted, rejected, and condemned them. When Christian men err, syncretize, and apostatize, a properly functioning, healthy church will refute and anathematize the new errors. And today the churches are, the Reformed churches, uh, most of them, there's a, you know, like the OPC, the PCA, the RPCNA, uh, they're very weak and they're very compromised. And uh, so this heresy comes along in 2002, the Federal Vision Heresy, which is, is kind of a modified form of Roman Catholicism. You're saved by your faith and the works that flow from your faith. They don't believe that works are a separate category in sanctification that's a fruit of faith. They place it as part of the overall thing that justifies you, which is a heresy. The OPC wrote a paper and the PCA responded, uh, and there was not real discipline they responded really poorly, as where the ancient church would ex would have excommunicated all the men that were teaching it. They were more biblical than the modern church. So, an orthodox teacher, as orthodox teachers, elders, as in, or in the case of Athanasius, a deacon, Battle faults, teachings, and gross heresies, they have produced excellent, precise, fully biblical, creedal statements and confessions of faith. Therefore, as individual believers and as faithful Christians, churches, when it comes to holding to the faithful theological positions, we stand on the shoulders of all the faithful Christian warriors who preceded us. And you say, well, yeah, there were these wonderful doctrinal statements, the, the early ecumenical councils, and then, of course, later ones were totally unbiblical. Why is it that you hold to some and you don't hold to others? Why? Because we test all things. The Reformed churches did not hold to the later councils that uphold, held idolatry and all sorts of crazy superstitions. They only accepted the early councils that had really good biblical statements on things like the Trinity and the divinity of Christ. We do not need, so to speak, to reinvent the wheel theologically. And I had a seminary professor who looked into this, these groups that said, well, no, we don't have creeds or confessions. We ignore them. We're just going to go straight to the Bible. And what do they do? They went through the same heresies that the early church went through. There's nothing wrong with learning from the scholarship of those who went before us. It's a good thing as long as you're always doing it, proving everything from Scripture. That's why when, when new heresies come, they usually come, they're usually ambiguous and deliberately, uh, they deliberately write in vague ways to have plausible deniability because they're introducing something new. The Federal Vision did that very effectively, especially Doug Wilson. <clears throat> you know, 
does he really mean this or does he mean this? Or what Doug Wilson likes to do is he'll say something totally wrong and then two pages later he'll contradict himself. This folk forces the church to carefully search the scriptures to prove, clarify, and organize doctrines in such a manner that those who run can read and understand. It's like a fence. You have to understand, the church is taking in new members. And how do you, you have to catechize those new members, then you have to be able to test them to make sure they have a credible profession of faith. And it just makes sense to have organized systems of doctrine that do that. It's just, it just makes sense, historically and doctrinally. The church does not discover new doctrines, for everything is already contained in the faith once delivered to the saints, Jude 3. But the theological documents that arise in the furnace of theological controversy and attacks by heretics present crucial truths in a more detailed, clear manner that cannot be misunderstood or twisted by theological wolves among the flock. That statement, if I read you the uh, Nicene Creed, or the, uh, you'd be amazed <laughs> how brilliantly the thing is written. <clears throat> Everything they teach can be proved right out of the text of Scripture. Now keep in mind that whatever fully agrees with the Bible has the authority of Scripture as a subordinate standard. Since these statements fully agree with the Word of God, they serve as a fence to bar false teachers and heretics from the true church of Christ. So when a, when a pastor preaches something, and what he says is totally biblical, you have to treat that as the Word of God in the sense that he's simply reflecting what the Word of God says. He's not inventing something. The difference between the Reformed creeds, confessions, and catechisms and the Roman Catholic traditions, which are teachings simply made up by the churchmen or derived from heathen sources, is easily understood if we comprehend the Christian teaching on liberty of conscience. Liberty of conscience. And I'll read from the Westminster Standards. Liberty of conscience is, quote, freedom from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or beside it in matters of faith or worship. So if the church teaches something that contradicts what the Bible says, obviously, you're free to disregard it. You have a duty to disregard it. You have a duty to dis not do it. And, this is what's brilliant about the Westminster Standards, even if the church simply adds its own ideas or practices that are not found or derived from the biblical text, we are free and we uh, to disobey and not practice these human additions. And it's our duty not to obey these human additions. Because they, they're not based on the divine authority. You know, oh, we're not going to meet, we're not going to eat meat every Friday. You know, uh, we have to go to confession on Saturday. You know, things that are not in the Bible, we don't have to do. In fact, we shouldn't do. In fact, we are required by the law, Deuteronomy 4, 2, 12, 32, Christ, Matthew 15, 3 to 9, John 4, 24, Mark 7, 6 to 13, and Paul, Colossians 2, 8, and 20 to 23, to reject such things. 
So the because the idea common among evangelicals when it comes to worship and stuff is, well, yeah, we don't want to do anything that explicitly contradicts the Bible, but if it's not condemned by the Bible, we're free to make it up and add it to the church as long as we want, as much as we want. And that contradicts explicitly what the Scripture teaches. We are never to blindly or implicitly accept what the church teaches or requires simply because the church says so. I remember these guys were having an internet debate and they were not really proving their case. And so they started appealing, well, Mother Church says, Mother Church says. That's a really bad argument. Prove it from Scripture. Go back, find the good guys who agreed with it. That's fine, but you got to prove it from Scripture. <clears throat> but if a church creed or requirement can be proved from the Bible, then we are required to believe it and obey it. We do not have the liberty to ignore, disregard, or disobey such teachings because they are founded on the infallible, authoritative Word of God. That's why, you know, you get these pastors and they're up there cracking jokes and they're telling dirty dog, dead dog stories and they're super entertaining. I don't, you know, there's better pagan comedians. I, I, I don't need to go to church to hear some guy making up a bunch of stuff. You're there to learn the word of God. Preaching must be, comes out of the word of God. Since we're required to attend weekly public worship, where an expositional sermon is to be preached out of the Word of God, Hebrews 10, 25, 1 Corinthians 16, 2, Acts 20, verse 7, and we are to submit to our elders in the Lord, Hebrews 13, 7, and 17, it is evident that a diligent testing of doctrine, practice, and discipline must be a continual, serious commitment on the part of every Christian. Okay, so when we look at the duty of examination, test everything, our, in, our liberty to do that, liberty of conscience, we also do that looking at what the Bible teaches about the church. If believers were much more obedient and diligent in this duty, then it would be much more difficult for Satan to corrupt churches with heresies and humanistic worship practices. Okay, if I was going to Doug Wilson's church and he started preaching this Federal Vision stuff, uh, I'd meet with him and I'd say, dude, you're not proving this. You've got to prove this from the Word of God. And then I would refute him. And I would bring him up on charges. But because people don't know the Scriptures, and people have an implicit faith in their elders, those Federal Vision churches lost virtually no one. Doug Wilson's church is massive. It's like 700 families. I think he only lost maybe two families when he started preaching this crazy stuff. So you got to be aware. It is evident that a diligent testing of doctrine, practice, and discipline must be a continual serious commitment on the part of every Christian. If believers were much more obedient and diligent, we wouldn't have all these heresies being introduced. In addition, solid, organized, comprehensive, thoroughly biblical creeds and confessions are necessary for the church as a corporate body 
is, uh, is a confessing church and should be a covenanting church. Now, covenants revolve around creeds. We as a body have had a reformation. We reject Romanism. We reject prelacy. We reject this influx of humanism and human traditions in the church. This is what we believe. This is what we swear to. So you have to have a doctrinal statement. People don't realize that the reason we have the Westminster Standards is because they had a covenant. They made a covenant to keep those standards, to promote those standards, and not allow society and the church to rot. The unity of spirit and purpose in the church must be thoroughly rooted in the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And this can only be accomplished by the whole body of people adopting a creedal statement faithful to the scriptures in which they all agree. So if you look at the Westminster Standards or the Heidelberg Catechism or the First and Second Helvetic and so forth, you find that the, 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 the main doctrines are all covered thoroughly. The Trinity, the divinity of Christ, the doctrine of salvation, sanctification, all these type of things and stuff about worship that is cru crucial. Well, all evangelical Christians agree that the Bible is the infallible, perfect, inspired, and authoritative word of God. There are many, many different views regarding salvation, the law, worship, church government, the sacraments, and so on. There's all kinds of different crazy views. Even today among Reformed people. you got, you know, the OPC and PC, you've got sacramentalists in there. You've got people that believe in high church liturgies. You've got, all, you've got people who don't even believe in six-day literal creationism. you got all kinds of kooky stuff. <clears throat> Every communion must have a separate creed or confession. Every church... Because they don't agree. I want honest advertising. I want to go to a church and know that what they say they believe, they really believe. It is our job as Christians to commit ourselves to a church that has a subordinate standard that not only is the most faithful to the scriptures, but also that honestly and fully keeps and enforces that standard. What modern, like the modern Reformed churches have, you know, they still swear to these standards, but they, there's a lot of stuff they let people slide. They have, they have a, a plurality of doctrine, let's say. They have kind of a doctrinal relativism. Now, you can't deny the divinity of Christ. You can't deny some of the big things. You can't deny the Trinity, but you can have, there's different views of the, of the sacraments, in the federal vision, they're sacramentalists. There's different views of salvation. The federal vision is not the gospel because they're not honest and open about the confession and they allow all different views. There's different views. You know, there's like five or six different views regarding the early chapters of Genesis. That's not honest. Subscriptionism, it's not honest. You know, that, that's swearing to something with crossed fingers. In other words, loose subscriptionism is a dishonest, humanistic, pragmatic approach to creedalism. Moreover, swearing to uphold a standard or standards involves corporate covenanting. When you join a church, what's it called? The covenant of church membership. The purpose of which is to look in and protect the doctrinal, ecclesiastical, and practical attainments of the First and Second Reformations. It is our job as Christians to test all things 
and in the corporate body of Christ to make sure that we pass those things on to our children. And faithful covenanting serves that purpose. A crucial aspect of sanctification is not to backslide, syncretize, or allow human autonomy in thought or practice. When communions become more humanistic, pragmatic, and decline, they oppose themselves to covenanting and strict creedalism because they do not want to abandon their declension and they like to be big. <laughs> they want to be big. That's how that's one of the main reasons the one of the main reasons for loose subscriptionism is pragmatism. If you allow all sorts of different views in the church, your church is going to be bigger. Many, many years ago I had a an elder who started celebrating Christmas. And so he met with a session and we told him you're gonna to have to resign from the eldership or abandon Christmas. And you say that's crazy. He, you know, he thought that was crazy, but we have to uphold the Reformation. Christmas is not biblical, so it has to go. While biblical creeds and confessions are wise and necessary, they are subordinate to Scripture at all times, and are adopted only after being thoroughly tested or proved from the Bible. Uh, that's one thing I like. That they have proof texts of the Westminster Standards. Now, a couple of them are a little off base, but they're pretty darn good. And if you read the Westminster Standards, you should be looking at the proof texts. They're really good. Groups that have misunderstood Sola Scriptura and thus have abandoned the first group of Orthodox ecumenical creeds and the great Protestant confessions and catechisms have fallen into many errors and heresies because they refuse to consult the faithful spiritual forefathers who preceded them and who courageously defeated several deadly heresies. This happened. There was a group in Canada. They said, we're not going to... This happened back in the 70s. We reject all creeds. We're going to ignore everything before us in church history. And we're going to go to the Bible ourselves. And this church developed heresy after heresy after heresy. You know, I'll study the Greek and the, and, and, and the passage carefully, but I'll also, you know, if I have 20 commentaries on that passage, I'll read all 20. I want to see. It was godly men using private judgment who carefully searched the scriptures, who held back the tide of damnable heresies and theological perversions. It is our use of private judgment that confirms, accepts, believes, and embraces the Reformed creeds, confessions, and catechisms because we have searched the scriptures and have seen that what they teach is true, thoroughly biblical. That's why there's got to be catechization before somebody becomes a communicant member. You know, unless they, you meet with them if they've been raised a Christian, a Reformed Christian, and they've been studying their whole life and they know doctrine really well. We reject other purportedly evangelical creeds, there's all kinds of them, because they contain heresies, for example, Arminianism, and other serious errors. Consubstantiation, it's ridiculous. The true blood and the true body, the true elements, are in and with and under the bread and the wine. Prelacy, that is Episcopal Church government, which is in Episcopalianism, it's in Methodism, it's in some of the charismatic circles. It's totally unbiblical. There's a body of elders that rules the church. There's not one big bishop over all the others. Sacramentalism, the idea that you're regenerated by your baptism. 
and of course paid a communion. They contradict the word of God. They have to be rejected. Every Christian is a theologian whether he knows it or not. And are we going to be informed, mature, knowledgeable theologians who can give a biblical answer to everyone who asks? Or are we going to be like ignorant infants who are easily led about by every wind of doctrine? Back in the 90s, I saw um, R.C. Sproul Jr. And he had just been to a big book conference. One of these giant ones. And someone in his group, I think it was him, someone in his group went around and just simply asked all these evangelicals, uh, do you know the Ten Commandments? Do you know the Lord's Prayer? Simple questions. Complete ignorance. The amount of ignorance was mind-boggling. People don't know the Ten Commandments. People don't know the Lord's Prayer. You know, there's all kinds of things they don't know. And it's tragic. It's sad. And that's why people are easily manipulated and become syncretistic and adopt their ethics to this culture. <clears throat> we have a duty to Christ, his church, and our families to know and defend the true Christian doctrine and pass that knowledge and commitment down to future generations. And this can only occur if we test all things and hold fast to the spiritual attainments we have. If you're in a church and they're doing something, like the RPCNA have women deacons, totally unscriptural. Now, there were women deacons in the ancient church, but they had nothing to do with men deacons. They had to be 65 years and older, they had to be widows, and they ministered to other women in the church. Things that men shouldn't do. You know, a woman had a baby, they would minister to her. But modern women deacons are the same as men deacons. That's feminism. It has nothing to do with the Bible. You have to reject it. And when I was in the RP, this is one reason I didn't get along with the RPCNA. I did a series and I preached against women deacons. And the elders were all flipped out. Oh, you're saying stuff against the church. Well, it's unbiblical. What am I supposed to do? Not preach the whole counsel? You have a choice. You can either not preach the whole counsel of God or you can teach heresy or error. That's your, that's your alternatives. And this can only occur if we test all things and hold fast to the spiritual attainments we have. 2 Thessalonians 2, 15, Brethren, hold fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. And he's not talking about human traditions. He's talking about the doctrine of the apostles. Let us stand firm in the solid rock of sacred scripture, Matthew 7, 24 to 27, and continuously cling to the authoritative inspired teachings that our Lord has given to us. So I hope, I probably went into too much detail on all the heresies, and there were a lot more, but the point I'm trying to make is the test all things is in the context of the teaching about the church. So we're testing all things all the time as individual Christians, and the church is testing all things. They're supposed to test all things. The problem is, is that when tr human traditions come in and errors, they become popular, they become accepted and adopted by the church, and then they don't even want you to talk about it. They don't want you talking about exclusive psalmody without musical instruments. They don't want you talking about anti-Christmas stuff. They don't want you talking about... The churches, you know, around here, don't talk about Cal. I got kicked out of churches for teaching when I first became a Calvinist. They, you know, they looked at, at Calvinism like the devil looks at the cross. I mean, they just were totally afraid of it. And they were teaching heresy. You can respect the office, but you don't tolerate error for one minute. 
and you're not never we're never going to have reformation if people are afraid to teach things because the church is corrupt and has adopted a bunch of garbage so let us maintain the teachings that the lord has given us and pass them on let us keep our testimony let us be faithful to our testimony and our standards and our covenants and then next week is private judgment dangerous now, if you've ever done any interaction among Roman Catholics, what is their main argument against Protestantism? Oh, it, divide, it destroyed the unity of the church. There's over 200 Protestant denominations teaching all sorts of things. What a terrible thing. So we're going to look at that next week, and I'm going to show that that's a terrible argument. But I hope you see your, your duty as a Christian. You should have a little library. You should at least have Matthew Henry. You should be studying the Bible. You should know doctrine. You, you should know your theology. And Christians don't think they need to because they're in a church and the elders and the pastor does everything. I'll never forget, I've been put in situations where, okay, go plant a church. There was one family. And, and the people, that family's attitude is, go have fun. You need work of everybody. But anyway, let us meditate on this. We'll, 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 Lord willing, we'll look at the next thing next week. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we do have liberty of conscience, that we do have the right and the duty to prove everything from the word of God, that we don't blindly submit to men who often err and often act like fools. We don't have to submit to idiots and heretics, but we could submit to Christ and his word. In Jesus' name, amen.